You may find this hard to believe, but 60 songs that explain the 90s, America's favorite poorly named music podcast is back with 30 more songs and 120 songs total. I'm your host, Rob Harvilla, here to bring you more shrewd musical analysis, poignant nostalgic reveries, crude personal anecdotes, and rad special guests all with even less restraint than usual. Join us once more on 60 Saws That Explain the 90s every Wednesday on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello and welcome to Trial by Content. It's the podcast where we force our favorite pop culture to compete in the Coliseum of Contentious Opinion. So we could all decide what wins. You know, I could probably just do this once and then we could have played it over and over. But here for you, the listeners, I do it every week. Each week, your three humble hosts will debate a pop culture topic, set the specific rules and rumble until a consensus is reached. Then with input from you, the listener base, we'll smash together our nominations with yours and determine a final four nominee poll that will enter trial by content and decide the winner for all time. You know me, I'm Dave Gonzalez. You know me, I'm Joanna Robinson. And and I remain Neil Miller. (laughs) (laughs) This week, we're assuming the truth is out there, and by truth we mean aliens, and by out there we mean they're finally alerting us to their presence. Sometimes they're here to take over, sometimes they're here to share, sometimes they're just here to represent family issues. What we're trying to determine this week is which is the best movie in which humanity makes first contact. But first, we have some very specifically decisive results from last week's debate, the most iconic MacGuffin in cinema history. Coming in last is me with the money in Psycho with only 5.7% of the vote. I'm very sad, uh, but I hear you. Uh, I will try harder. I thought picking the Hitchcock would get me somewhere. The the whole internet was like, who? Hitchcock? What? (laughs) Yeah, what? Psycho, never heard of it. (laughs) (laughs) The Vince Vaughn one? Well, here's the deal. Basically, the whole internet was like, what's a Hitchcock, right? <laughs> or what's a MacGuffin? And we were like, well, if you listen to the podcast, we talked about that. And they're like, we don't want to do that. Yeah, so we're we just going to yell at you <laughs> that your picks are not MacGuffins. And then the goddamn dictionary, Merriam-Webster.com, subtweeted us on Twitter with the definition of MacGuffin. So it was a, it was a wild time this week. Sorry, we, go should, ahead, Dave. we should keep uh, poking the, the dictionary and oh. seeing if they'll just define 100%. something for us every week. Yeah. What is an alien, really? Who knows? Miriam Webster will tell you. Coming in third place with uh, over double my percentage is uh, Neo with the necklace from Titanic that got 14.7% of the vote. Uh, Huzzah, not Knights of Neil. Sure. Uh, Yes. In second place, speaking of knights, the Holy Grail from Monty Python and the Holy Grail got 17% of the vote. 
And then if you've been adding up percentages, you know that we're coming with a huge hammer of a win. It's Joanna Robinson at the top of the heap once again with the briefcase from Pulp Fiction with 62.6% of the vote. I think we know what the most iconic MacGuffin in cinema history actually is, uh, which is good. We're, we're learning something. It's Even brief, Neil and I. It's all, all briefcases. Yeah, all the briefcases. The all briefcase theory. <laughs> Uh, before we get started uh, with this week's debate, here's just a reminder that if you want to hear all the movies that we mention on an episode of the podcast, not just the ones that make it into the final poll, you can see a list of that there at letterboxd.com slash trial by content. And if you want to make sure that your very correct opinions are included in next week's debate, uh, we are going to be debating what is the best on-screen meal of all time. TV, movies, doesn't matter, but it must be delicious uh, looking in nature. Uh, you can make your case by emailing trialbycontent at gmail.com with your pick and a list of why you picked that pick. Even a screenshot, if you wish. Uh, we've already gotten one unexpected screenshot submission internally uh, that shows next week's going to be... A real Honestly, fun week. Yeah. A really fun pick. <laughs> uh, that means it is time to jump into this week's trial by content. Joanna, what are we debating? Well, Merriam Webster defines first <laughs> contact <laughs> as the initial encounter between cultures that were previously unaware of each other. Uh, if this is your first contact with our podcast, uh, this is these are the rules. The choice for the trial this week has to be. A movie in which humanity makes its first contact with aliens. Um, so that is that is what we were talking about this week. Hold on, let me see what Mary Merriam Webster defines aliens as. Uh, a resident who is born elsewhere and is not a citizen of the country in which he or she now lives. Two. Oh. That's not what we're going. That's not what we're we talking need, about. We need aliens from further we're away. Doing- this isn't Sicario. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing uh, the extraterrestrial version of this. Um, but Merriam-Webster does not give that as a main definition. Coming from another world. That's definition D of alien. Coming from another world. Okay. The reason we're doing this particular podcast, this particular debate this week is because of the Wes Anderson film Asteroid City, with which opened last weekend. Um, we were a little later uh, seeing it than we usually are. So we sort of flipped this with our Indiana Jones uh, pegged piece, which went last week. So we're doing things a little out of order this week. But what it definitely means is all three of us have seen Asteroid City. <laughs> and we're going to talk about it now. So we're talking about Asteroid City a little bit. Um, spoilers for Asteroid City. If you want to hop ahead, you can hop ahead. But this is a little asteroid. We're not going to like majorly spoil it. And it's really like the premise is a group of Disparate characters gathered in the desert for a scientific competition experience first contact with a being not of this world. That's that's one way to describe the premise of this movie for sure. <laughs> there are also meta layers inside of the movie, um, as has been the case with like not every single Wes Anderson movie, but a lot of Wes Anderson movies. And increasingly of late, he will put these like frame narrative boxes around his stories. Like French Dispatch was very boxy. Uh, but like even going back to something like Royal Tenenbaums, which like has a, a book that is sort of like a frame narrative around it or stuff like that. Like this, this is the thing that he does. The, 
the examination, the frame narrative is an examination of Asteroid City, the stage play as written by a playwright played by Edward Norton as given to you via a 1950s TV special hosted by Brian Cranston. So layers upon layers upon layers of meta commentary about art, story, storytelling, et cetera, et cetera. And many people consider this, many people are saying, and it was really Trumpy of me, but like a common interpretation of this film is that it is like Wes Anderson's most inner looking metatextual story of his relationship with his own work as an artist, as someone searching for meaning in his own art, uh, worried that he's lost contact, speak of contact, lost contact with maybe the heart of the stories that he wants to tell. And so like, so I did not respond. I did not like French Dispatch at all. I generally do like Wes Anderson films. I did not like French Dispatch at all. Um, I liked Asteroid City more, but but not as much as my favorite Wes Anderson films. And I think because when I feel like you don't hit at the heart of something in a Wes Anderson film, then you run the risk of just being left with aesthetic, um, which is sort of, you know, has been enhanced and underlined by the recent like TikTok trends of like the Wes Anderson aesthetic and stuff like that, or the Instagram account accidentally Wes Anderson, et cetera. So like in my view, unless you have, a truly emotionally resonant performance at the center. So my favorite for me, my favorite Wes Anderson films like Grand Budapest Hotel and Royal Tenenbaums have performances by the likes of Ray Fiennes and Gene Hackman that transcend the like sort of flat affect delivery that most of the Wes Anderson company uh, put forth. So that was my experience with it. My sense is that it was not Neil and Dave's experience with it. So let's go to Dave first, who voiced his strongest disagreement with me about his uh, response to Asteroid City. Dave? I mean, maybe that's because we're different people, Joanna, because oh. <laughs> I love that Asteroid City is sort of a reverse Wes Anderson where we get the truest things at the beginning and then we fall very, very deeply into the ordering, the boxing, and how we move uh, in between those things. Uh, I think that it is very uh, inward-facing for him as a director because it is... Like, what happens if I catalog everything? What happens if I tell you what scenes of which act you're about to watch and hint about what the content can be? Uh, and then it ends uh, sort of with a uh, monologue that reminds you uh, what the overall context was delivered by a, a movie star that uh, is only seen in a still photograph, but I totally remembered her being in the in the credits for uh, for the trailer. So I was waiting for that person to pop up in a more substantial way. I think it does manage us to push us, the audience, um, sort of back to the other side. So right as we're with the main characters who are sort of struggling in performing these characters on a TV show, in a play, and then in a recreation, uh, it sort of gives us a little boot back across the aisle for the ending. Uh, which I really appreciate, which becomes, uh, you know, you could structure something only so much, but at the end, uh, we are looking for answers in the film as much as people in the film are looking for answers with their uh, own personal journeys. So it really worked for me. Is it my favorite? No, but it is my favorite since Grand Budapest Hotel, uh, French Dispatch and Isle of Dogs uh, both felt like... Uh, slight detours for me in uh, f 
full works uh, that Anderson usually puts out. And this one, I feel, although it is a little bit navel-gazy and maybe there's not a real human being in the entire thing, uh, I kind of think that's the point. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I probably agree more with Dave on this one. I liked it. I would say that I liked it for the, I guess, things that it does differently than um, the French French Dispatch. I mean, I feel like, you know, Wes Anderson definitely in his COVID era, um, like the rest of, of filmmaking, where it's, you know, harder to get his large casts all in the same room, uh, see many shots of Tom Hanks in this movie where he's clearly not actually there. Um, but I found it to be more lively. I think, I think there's, there's a more lively camera movement in asteroid city than what we got in French dispatch. There are these really long methodical held moments that I think are really great aesthetically, which is something that I very much enjoy about Wes Anderson's film. This one it's probably the one I've liked the most since either Grand Budapest or Fantastic Mr. Fox. And mostly it is that I'm a sucker for like retro futurism. So it's like immediately when that train shows up in the first shot, I'm like, ooh, this is this is my kind of aesthetic that I've wanted Wes Anderson to play in for a long time. And then, of course, the hits keep on coming with, with the cast. There's like young cast members that are just really fantastic. Um, and I feel like maybe I was more invested in the core story, which is between Jason Schwartzman and Scarlett Johansson's characters. Like that one worked enough for me, just these conversations that they're, they're having back and forth through their windows um, that I think make it feel like, uh, I would say an upper tier Wes Anderson experience, right? Like this to me feels like him coming back around to his grand Budapest era uh, finding finding a little bit of heart and finding some silliness, right? I feel like it's maybe he hasn't been as silly uh, since what Moonrise Kingdom. <laughs> Need more silliness? Give Liam Schreiber laser gun. And yeah, off right? we go. <laughs> exactly. There's also a really great you know uh, musical number that involves kids making up a song about aliens that I just thought was uh, blasty. So uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. I mean, it's what. 105 minutes, which is a real nice oh, antidote yeah. to a lot nice. of the uh, longer, not not all of which I have disliked, but significantly longer summer blockbusters we're seeing in 2023. So, you know, it was, just, it was nice to sit there and let Wes Anderson do his quirk for a, was, <laughs> a little yeah, while. I think, I think I just got, I felt a little like overcooked on the quirk. Like the number of whip pans just felt like it was like, you remember when everyone was just like banging on about J.J. Uh, Abrams and Lenslayer? It's as if J.J. Abrams heard that and was like, I'm going to triple the Lenslayer and you motherfuckers are going to choke on it. That's sort of what it felt like with the whip pans in this one for, uh, for Wes Anderson. And I also felt like there was a lot of extra like, I think this this the truly stacked, 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 stacked cast, and the same was true of French Dispatch, is almost distracting for me in that I'm like, there's not an, like, Hope David, why is, why is Hung Chow here for one scene? Why is Hope Davis here barely sure. doing anything? I kind of want to be invested in the Maya Hawk group of friend, like, side romance or whatever, but I'm not, I don't know, it's not There's really, not a lot of time with them. You know? 
But speaking of people not a lot of time, I am going to spoil the uh, the part that Dave sort of sidestepped around. So if you really don't want to hear that, but she's in the cast, so I'm not. I don't think it's that big of a spoiler. <laughs> um, but here it comes. The scene with Margot Robbie and Jason Schwartzman is, I think, the closest we get to like an emotional, a real emotional, like a real human in this movie. And is by far the best part, I think, of the movie. And I think it's so interesting that the idea that in the production of Asteroid City, this is this, this is the interaction that has been cut out. And I think it is, again, Wes Anderson sort of grappling with emotionality and how much he uh bleeds his stories of emotionality and and prefers to sort of let people i don't know like find their i don't know overlay their own emotional interpretation to a very very flat performances like intentionally flat performances um uh i think darjeeling limited was like a big example of this cuz you've got like three three brothers in that film dealing with grief and loss and also one of them had recently like tried to commit suicide and um it it's done in like musical montage is where you get like the most emotional moments in that movie and that's i think that's interesting and can be effective but i also just think that sometimes i just get overwhelmed by aesthetic and i would prefer a more emotional connection to what's going on um well, that's fair, and I don't. I, and I think I think we're all right in our own ways. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> it just it comes down to preference. I do not want to leave this part of talking about it without. I can't overstate how hot Adrian Brody is in this film, <laughs> and how <laughs> slutty his tight white T-shirt is that he like makes him look like Marlon Brando. It is like one of the sluttiest costumes I've ever seen in my entire life. Is Adrian Brody in this film? Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. Also, uh, listen. Cranston is only in there for a little bit, but Cranston gets the best joke of the movie. There's just one moment that I I think is really special. The like very meta part. Of yeah, it? yeah, <laughs> That's, that is funny. Okay, so let's talk about the but let's talk about the first contact aspect of this because the there are two sequences where a Carving Van wrong stop stop motion animated alien. Is that what we're looking at? I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Here. Um, it appears to be, yeah. Comes down. Everyone is, uh, the, all of our cast of characters are collected around. Comes down, picks up an asteroid, leaves, and then comes back later and puts the asteroid back, having inventoried it, having cataloged it. Um, and what I do like about, what I do like about this sequence is the performance, if you want to call it that, of this stop motion um, alien, where they look hesitant and cautious and then there's like a later discussion of like what was on the mind what were they thinking what is my why what is my interpretation of this completely uh dialogue free moment where we uh, in these first contact moments that we are going to talk about in all these films you're like often on a knife's edge especially if like the government's involved etc of like what what's going to happen what is this being want can we communicate in some way? Friend or foe is like at the heart of most first contact stories, right? Mm -hmm. What does this being want? Um, should I be afraid of them? Are they afraid of me? Et cetera, et cetera. And so I liked how I think open to interpretation this particular 
uh, creature was being is maybe a, a better way to put it. Uh, Neil, what do you think? I mean, I loved it. Mostly what I love about it is the eyes because it it's very reminiscent of a lot of shots of animals in Fantastic Mr. Fox being shocked. And it's the it's the facial expression of like, can they see me right now? <laughs> like looking around at all the humans. Um, so I think it's played very well for comedy in the movie. It's, it's extremely funny. And uh, yeah, I mean, this this movie wants to ruminate in the moment where no one knows what to say in the first contact, right? The moment where humanity is, the, the humans are just so taken aback by the audaciousness of an alien just sort of landing in the middle of their party. And no one ever really gets to ask any questions, which I think is very funny too. So I, I love it. I love the design of it. I think the fact that Wes Anderson still continues to weave stop motion animation in, even though he's made several full length stop motion movies is just adds to the charm for me. So I'm for it. Dave. Oh yeah. I liked it. I especially liked how it's deployed because it's a hilarious scene for the reasons you both described. Uh, But it's mostly just there to activate everybody. And so it's an activation for all of our characters who are suddenly uh, having to deal with the fact that they aren't alone in the universe on top of the fact that it has one of my favorite uh, first contact tropes, which is the government with the best intentions just messes everything up. Uh, <laughs> like that's the best of intentions? Well, <laughs> the government sometimes. with its intentions. Yeah. With its intentions. <laughs> Uh, it's mess everything up. Yeah. 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 So they end up quarantining our cast of characters uh, all together, which allows for some uh, rapid character development in panic. And you got to love that as a, as a, a force. Um, even though a lot of the movies we'll be talking about today are about like first contact as the event of the movie. First contact could just be an event in the movie, uh, which I think this movie does pretty well. I think also the way that it reflects the themes of like isolation, grief. Again, we've got a lot of grief running through this uh, film as Jason Schwartzman's character is and his children are grieving the loss of of his wife. And um, the that connection, disconnection, uh, you know, Neil mentioned the Scarlett Johansson, Jason Schwartzman scenes, which are done through windows Um Again, real COVID vibes, right? Or the Margot Robbie, Jason Schwartzman scene are done across balconies. Like we're always separate and apart. And I think something that First Contact stories, having having looked at a lot of these for this podcast we're going to do today, like a lot of it has to do with like connection, isolation, what binds us together as like human beings on earth in like all of a sudden when you have this otherworldly presence, then all of a sudden we become one massive tribe the earth. Right. Uh, whereas before we were a bunch of tribes. Um, and I, so I think that desire to connect with each other and then connect with the other worldly and the way in which those mysterious moments of si- of, of encounter of silence, of lack of communication, of uncertainty, of motivation, friend or foe, et cetera, how they can provoke inner inner journeys for people that's true in this movie that's true in a lot of the of the movies that we're going to talk about today how like this idea is so massive and so tied to like larger concepts of like religion sky daddy personal daddy issues like all this sort of stuff like that 
uh, wrapped up into to sort of one concept. So I, I think you know this film is effective in using that encounter to echo through these other moments of connection and disconnection that are in the in the movie. Um, and I love I love the line. It's it's I don't think it's I could be wrong because it's sort of hard to track always with the nesting narratives. But I don't think it's a line you hear in the like color asteroid city thing proper. It's a line you hear Jason Schwartzman's character give in the black and white as he's an actor. But he says, I think your sisters are also aliens. Um, And it's like both a joke, but also that idea of like a parent who doesn't know how to connect with his kids. And especially like these three girls who are so like fun and weird, like, you know, it's just sort of like can seem almost like an alien to you um, because you don't know how to deal with them, connect with them, communicate with them. Um, I thought I, I really liked that little throwaway line as a, as a concept. Um, yeah. yeah. 100%. Um, another thing I enjoyed about this movie, tangentially, mm-hmm. some really, really ridiculous character names. Um, I would like to present the most ridiculous <laughs> one, I think. I mean, because you have Scarlett Johansson's character is Midge Campbell. Great old Hollywood name. Mm-hmm. Edward Norton's character, Conrad Earp. Love it. But my favorite is Willem Dafoe, who does show up at some point as a character named Salzburg Keitel, a revered acting teacher. So no. shout out to Wes Anderson for really going off with the uh, character names in this one. Um, anything else, Dave, you want to say about Asteroid City? Uh, yeah. I mean, maybe as a way of leading in, um, there's a special thanks to Steven Spielberg there in the credits at the end. And I was like, what did Steven Spielberg do on this movie? And as far as I could tell, nothing. I think that's all subject matter about uh, using aliens as a dramatic device. Uh, there are definitely sure. some uh, very specific looking shots from the, the Steven Spielberg filmography. Uh, maybe maybe some of those will come up uh, a little later in the podcast. Aliens coming down uh, among the rock formations of the Western United States. Might be a Spielberg thing. Possibly potatoes. Who knows? Um, So we would also like to thank Steven Spielberg. Uh, Very special thanks in this podcast episode to one Steven Spielberg. That brings us to Neil Miller. What do you got to say, Neil Miller? Well, we've got some awards to give out as we do every week. And uh, this week we're going to start with our category crown, which I am giving to what I call the sci-fi firm of Wells, Wells, Melier, and Wise. (laughs) (laughs) This is, of course, to H.G. Wells, uh, W-E-L-L-S, the author of War of the Worlds, which in 1936, I believe, became a very famous radio play by another Wells, Orson Wells. There is also uh, George Melier, who made A Trip to the Moon in 1902, which I believe is the first film uh, on record of involving any sort of interaction with an alien species. Uh, you know, the main character goes to Earth and meets a little, or goes to the moon, meets little moon men. Uh, and then, of course, uh, Robert Wise, he, the Academy Award winning director of films like West Side Story, The Sound of Music, uh, a Star Trek, the motion picture. But most importantly for this debate, the original 1951 film, The Day the Earth Stood Still, which, you know, not the first movie to do it, but maybe the first of Hollywood's great blockbusters in this genre. And so many of the movies we're going to talk about owe quite a bit to the original Day the Earth Stood Still, um, which brings us to a related film. 
which is our category <laughs> clown this this week. And that is the 2008 remake of The Day the Earth Stood Still, <laughs> directed by uh, Dr. Strange's Scott Derrickson. This is a movie that I honestly was going into this prep thinking I could maybe reclaim this because I hated this movie when it came out. I'm a diehard fan of the original. I think it's got... Uh, I mean, that movie just zips along, is super fun, super clever, has just great thoughts about the nuclear age. And uh, the remake comes through and sort of undoes everything. It finds ways to waste Keanu Reeves and Jennifer Connelly and John Hamm. Wow. Uh, They butcher the alien ship design. (laughs) Right, yeah, triple (laughs) crown of wasting. Um, Kyle Chandler. Kyle Chandler. Kyle Chandler is in there. (laughs) <laughs> this is a movie that has an eccentric John Cleese in a role where an eccentric John Hurt should be, in my opinion. <laughs> uh, the only thing nice I will say about the Day of the Earth that's still 2008 is that Gort, the alien robot who defends Klaatu on his mission to warn us about our own destructive powers, uh, remains innocent in 2008 and still looks kind of good. Everything else, terrible. Our category clown. This is... Uh, Honestly, uh, reflective of the genre's struggles with sequels, legacy sequels, uh, remakes. I mean, we'll we'll get to maybe a little Independence Day at a certain point, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of these franchises in which aliens are met in the first film really do go off the rails quite quickly, and also don't don't remake classics. That's where I'm at on that one. Uh, <laughs> moving on, I have. Many other awards to give away. First, should we do it? Should we do a, a future like worst remake of a classic? Is that yeah. something we should do? I mean, we've, we've, we're t- we're two for two. Last week we were I was shit talking Psycho. This week you're like I'm coming for you. The day the earth stood still, 2008. <laughs> I feel like we can make a case for yeah. these. Yeah, I mean, and there's a, just a special category for films that um that you get far enough away where it's like was that really bad or was I just in a weird place in my life? And then you watch it again. You're like, nope, that's bad. That's a really bad movie. That's It's going to be bad forever. <laughs> that's how I feel about the day there's still 08. Uh, all right. Next award is a special jury prize for the most unique listener submission. Uh, I love recommending movies to all of you, but I love it even more when you recommend something that I've never seen or heard of. And this email comes from Neil with two E's. Shout out. Uh, says, for the four first contact movies, I would like to suggest a movie I don't think will make the pod. <laughs> Guess what? Or even suggest it otherwise, but it is great. Koi Mil Gaya, which translates to I Found Someone, is an Indian movie about finding an alien. It's like E.T., but instead of a kid, it's uh, Rithik Roshan, who is one of Bollywood's most attractive and muscled actors. All right. Uh, the movie has incredible music, great dance performances, and a hilarious and hilarious comedy, mostly unintentional, around trying to make trying to convince the audience that Rithik Roshan is a nerd. Again, it probably won't make the cut, but should be watched because it's a blast. So you know, I, I love a good recommendation of something I have not seen yet, especially in a genre that I have explored pretty deeply in my life, as it turns out. Please, please, <laughs> listeners, do yourself a solid and Google image search Rithik Roshan. That's H-R-I-T-H-I-K Roshan. Uh, this man has a 14-pack. Like, I've never seen anything <laughs> like, not since the Craven the Hunter poster have I seen <laughs> more unbelievable ab muscle. Keep this, keep this in mind for when we come back for our best abs debate later <laughs> yeah. in the year. Great. 
<laughs> so that that was a great one. Uh, please always, when you when you have one that you think that we've never seen before, definitely send that email in. Uh, our nice try award this week is just a thank you for our listener, Michael, who wrote in suggesting that the scene from Back to the Future in which George McFly meets quote-unquote Darth Vader... <laughs> is great. Uh, I mean, very on brand because that scene is set in the 1950s, so it matches up with Asteroid City. Uh, it includes Darth Vader, which is very popular. But uh, I don't think that counts because the movie itself is not about making first contact. But, uh, you know, maybe we'll come back to Bob Zemeckis here in a minute. Ah, <laughs> Bobby Z. Okay. Bobby Z. Yeah. We love his work in the space. Uh, but first... We have some dismissals. And my first dismissal category uh, this week is what I call certified underrated. And these are all movies that we did not get emails about and no one mentioned them. And I don't think that any of these were super... Well, one of these was kind of close to being my pick. But if I had to give you a little starter pack for all kinds of fun, weird ways to meet aliens, this is how it would go. And it would start with a movie called Mac and Me. Okay, it would start not with E.T. the Extraterrestrial, <laughs> but with Mac and Me. But with Mac and Me, yes. The 1988 E.T. knockoff that bombed hard at the box office because it may have been the height of Hollywood SponCon. It was basically a big McDonald's commercial. Uh, but it lives <laughs> on as a bizarro cult classic for, I guess, Gen Xers and some elder millennials uh, that once seen can absolutely never be forgotten. You really just, once you see the alien from Mac and Me, it's burned in your Isn't brain. Isn't it just... Paul Rudd and Conan O'Brien keeping the memory of this film alive. <laughs> They're doing be. a lot. It's a lion's share of work. Yeah, it might be, but uh, I do recommend if you've never seen Mac and Me, give it give it a once through, especially if you have fun recreational substances on hand. Uh, next on my list is the film Attack the Block, which is, yeah. as you'll recall, a movie in which John Boyega uses a samurai sword and friendship to defeat glowy teeth nightmare muppets and find neighborly solidarity with the 13th Doctor, Jodie Whittaker. <laughs> what a fantastic film. Fun fact about Attack the Block, it is under 90 minutes. It is a breezy little uh, Under 90 journey. minutes. I recommend subtitles because of the amount of mm. uh, slang that the kids Bruv. use. Yeah. <laughs> Bruv. But it's, it's worth it. And a super fun movie that made John Boyega the star he is uh, today. Uh, we also have Edge of Tomorrow, which is our first entry that involves Tom Cruise. He's going to be on, on theme. Pretty much forever. Uh, but this is a movie in which Emily Blunt uses her big Mapother energy and one actual Mapother to end an alien-infested groundhog doomsday scenario. <laughs> uh, this is fun. I, this one does include First Contact in like the opening credits. They explain what happened with First Contact. But a really great example of the aliens showed up and just started shooting movies. Uh, we didn't get to ask them any questions sort of thing. Uh, highly recommend Edge of Tomorrow. Uh, I also have the film, the 2014 film Under the Skin, which is a film in which an alien wears the skin of Scarlett Johansson to lure men into a pool of intergalactic jello where they are preserved <laughs> for later study and or consumption. If you've ever seen Under the Skin, uh, it's, a, it's a terrifying movie uh, if you're a man who's ever walked down the street late at night and uh, doesn't want to get killed by an alien. And there's some really gross stuff that happens once they get in that intergalactic jello. So... I recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> so I I was terrified for my life. Yeah. I recommend it. Just like one long fear boner for you? Is that what well, just under the, the skin is? The extreme, the most extreme fear boners 
of all time have been created by that movie. Uh, another one on my list is the movie Skyline, which is a 2011, it's a very low budget movie from the directors of Alien versus Predator Requiem that kind of got overshadowed by another big alien invasion movie, which was, do you remember Aaron Eckhart's star vehicle battle Los Angeles? Do I ever? <laughs> I went on a set visit to that movie. (laughs) Nobody was having a good time. Uh, The directors of Skyline also did the visual effects for Battle Los Angeles and at at one point got sued because Sony thought that they were basically doing both, uh, like making copies of all their stuff from one to the other. Uh, One of them was like a $10 million movie. The other one was like a $100 million movie. And I assure you, Skyline is better, even though its lead is Eric Balfour. Oh, whose name okay. I don't think about often. <laughs> I do. Well, he's in the Buffy pilot, so I think about him a lot. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but if you're if you're jonesing for low budget Eric Balfour versus aliens in Los Angeles, Skyline is your movie. It also has like five sequels, four sequels. It's wild. Uh, two more on this list. The first uh, is Prometheus, which is Ridley Scott's prequel to Alien, a movie that is pretty good despite some really terrible decisions uh, from the scientist characters in the movie taking off their helmets, doing a lot of that. But it's got some big visuals and a very chaotic performance uh, from Michael Fassbender as David. And yes. uh, Prometheus, a movie that's better than you remember it at this point. And uh, and then finally, my last one that no one mentioned that I thought would... It, it, this franchise didn't get any mention, but it's the 2021 film Prey, which is the current... First contact Slaps. movie in the pre- in the Predator franchise. Uh, the Predator franchise, a movie that does first contact every single time, it seems. But it's, the, uh, of course, the story of a badass young indigenous warrior who kicks the shit out of an elite alien hunter. It's, it's a really fun movie, and it's very much on Absolutely Hulu rules. still. Absolutely so sh- yeah. shout out to Prey. Um, so, you know, and no one's going to be disappointed that those got dismissed because no one submitted emails. And... Uh, you know, those are more the under-the-radar choices. This next group, which I'm going to read in rapid succession, might make some people mad once, once the poll goes out on Twitter. And this includes films like Independence Day, in which Will Smith welcomes aliens to Earth. 2001, A Space Odyssey, in which aliens uh, show up with a giant uh, domino. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and throughout throughout history and maybe also in, in Jupiter uh, District 9 when aliens show up and they are bug people played by Charlotte Copley uh, we have the movie The Blob which we did get an email about which uh, is basically just this intergalactic goop shows up which I think is fun uh, <laughs> I also wanted to shout out uh, never had a chance because it's not a feature film but one of my favorite Pixar shorts is the the short Lifted which is about a couple oh, of aliens yeah. who come and their whole job is to just get a guy out of his bed and then out of a house uh, using their um, tractor beam. And it goes hilariously wrong. And I've, I've always really enjoyed that one. I added these last three to your yeah, list, Neil, so I apologize. But these Flight of the Navigator, got to give it up to my Flight of the Navigator fans. No. We're going to have apparently a remake or a sequel or something coming to Disney+. Plus, But we got the original... It's a really dark story about a kid who gets uh, transported from, I believe, 1978 to 1986. Uh, no, no time passes for him. Time passes for the rest of Earth. He gets to meet Sarah Jessica Parker. NASA wants to do some tests. Uh, and then he uh, gets into an alien spaceship because it turns out he has all the star maps they need. If some obsessive at home 
has been listening to our podcast for years. I would like to hear the top five movies Dave champions the most because Flight of the Navigator is definitely in the top five. There's a nice. few other, but Flight of the Navigator <laughs> is an all-timer Dave Gonzalez champion movie. Yeah, yeah, I do like uh, mentioning Flight of the Navigator. A uh, man who fell to Earth, David Bowie plays an alien who's hanging out uh, on Earth. S- very attractive in human form. Very lizardy in natural form. Gotta love it. Uh, speaking of uh, lizard people, uh, The Last Starfighter, where there's a video game that's actually a test to see if humans can join uh, intergalactic war and uh, pilot a Starfighter. Uh, just super fun. And when I mentioned to somebody off pod, we were doing alien contact for some reason, he said the last starfighter. And I was like, interesting pick out of all the stone cold classics, but uh, not going to be chosen on this week's podcast. Nice. So those, those are some big dismissals. We also have one special dismissal category brought to us (laughs) this week by one Joanna Robinson. Joanna, would you like to do the honors on this one? Yeah, I'm calling this, (laughs) And uh, in honor of Mallory Rubin, I'm going to call this the most fuckable alien, a.k.a. I'd like to make first contact with them, if you know what I mean, and I think you do. Most fuckable alien, starting with Dave Gonzalez. (laughs) Braid me up. It's Natiri from Avatar. I don't know what that says about me. Well, no, I know what that says about me. I don't know what (laughs) you think that makes it, that that says about me, listener. Uh, But I'm willing to take it. Uh, Tall women, blue women, cat women. Yeah, yeah, sure. I'm into it. Sure. Zoe Great. Saldana in general, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sure. I'd, be, I'd be down for that. Tails, why not? <laughs> Great. <laughs> Tails, war Neil? cries, uh, yeah. riding dragons. It's all great. Uh, mine, we've already discussed the terrible fear boners brought upon by this movie. <laughs> But uh, this is my, my not only my answer for most fuckable alien, but also mo- alien most likely to result in my immediate death would be Scarlett Johansson's character from Under the Skin. A, a truly, truly terrifying. She seems so nice. <laughs> she just doesn't have a whole lot to say. And then all of a sudden you're in an intergalactic jello and you're being, uh, I don't know, what do they call it when your body just sort of explodes into goop? <laughs> Just turn into red mush. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Get in the goop, Neil. (laughs) Get in the goop. goop. (laughs) I just pictured Neil following a naked woman down a dark hallway, taking off his clothes, being like, there better not be any goop down there. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, gooped again. (laughs) Gotta stop falling for this. (laughs) Not the goop. All right. Maybe I should meet people on an app. No, the apps is definitely where the aliens are going to get you. You think the aliens are not oh, going to yeah. use the apps to get you? Of course they are. <laughs> All right. Um, I'm going to have some smuggles here. To reflect Dave's man who fell to Earth, I have to say, David Bowie, incredible hair, like best hair of anyone maybe ever in Man Who Fell to Earth. But also, Chimatola Jofer, who plays the same character in the recent TV adaptation of The Man Who Fell to Earth, which was not as good, but also equally fuckable. Um, but uh, top tier fuckable alien is Jeff Bridges and John Carpenter's Starman, 1984's Starman. And I'm just going to read you the tagline. <laughs> it goes like this. He, he has traveled from a galaxy far beyond our own. He has powers we cannot comprehend. And he is about to face the one force of the universe he has yet to conquer. Love. A.K.A. <laughs> Karen Allen got a fucking alien <laughs> in Starman. <laughs> 
So yeah, that's Jeff Bridges in his like most Harrison Ford era in uh, Starman 1984. Oh, yeah. um, that's I, this is a very important element of the discussion, and thank you all for going on this journey with me. Hundred percent. I also love the Bowie pick. Uh, my favorite space Bowie is actually Jermaine Clement in Flight of the Concords as Space Bowie. Yeah, as Space Bowie. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> that works well. Also, yeah. I feel like we should mention uh, Natasha Henshards and Species uh, probably would have sure. This owned is where this she category <laughs> if we had a podcast like a decade earlier, and I couldn't pick Avatar, and Neil couldn't pick Under the Skin. Sure. Yeah. Uh, probably one of us would have picked Sill. She slithered so so many of these sexy aliens could walk later. <laughs> She's she is the master of like there's a sexy kiss and then all of a sudden oh no something bad is happening and the guy is like oh, oh, you know and like I don't know <laughs> innards are being liquefied or something's about to go out the back of their head or something like that classic yeah Natasha amazing. Uh, all right. Well, I, we have one one final award to give out, and then we will hit the actual debate. These are the toughest ones. They are called the toughest cut. I would be happy to start. Mine involves something that is very hard to do for me, which is cutting a Christopher Nolan movie. Uh, that's also hard for Christopher Nolan to do. Cut it's a very hard Nolan for movie. all of us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but all the way up until the... Uh, Minutes before we jumped on our prep call, I was tossing around the idea of, of either this or the one I eventually picked. And this movie that I'm talking about is Interstellar, which is, of course, Matthew McConaughey goes into a space portal and then gets into a four-dimensional library at one point and tries to communicate back with uh, his daughter, Murph on earth it's a fantastic movie that as as dave and i discussed as we were prepping could be disqualified on a really intense very very weird technicality at the end because we never actually see the aliens in interstellar and we sort of theorize that they may not be entirely non-humans so it gets into a weird territory that I think my ultimate pick does not have to deal with. But Interstellar, as far as space-traveling spectacle and delivering huge emotional moments out of just Anne Hathaway standing on a rocky planet in her spacesuit, uh, is a really fantastic film and a really transformative journey. Uh, by far, I think, the hardest I've ever cried to a Matthew McConaughey movie. Like, it's not close is interstellar um so uh, that would be my toughest cut this week it it really it really came down to it i i wanted to summon the christopher nolan hive for this poll but my heart got I wanted in the way. that for you as well i wanted that for you as well <laughs> so that's my toughest cut joanna what are you cutting this week oh problematic fave of mine which is oh guys it's a not well-loved M. Night Shyamalan movie starring not well-loved Mel Gibson. Uh, but I'm sorry <laughs> to tell you that I love Signs. Um, I <laughs> love this movie so much. You probably heard me say that on a podcast before. Um, this, you know, we talked before about this idea of like what the concept of first contact provokes in people. So this is a gr another grief a uh, story mm -hmm. is reflected through first contact, right? Because Mel Gibson's character is grieving his loss of his wife, his children. He doesn't know how to connect with his children who are also grieving the loss of their mother. And then it is a faith story because he is um, a priest who has taken off the collar because 
of the death of his wife and he doesn't believe in it anymore or stuff like that. So this is an answer to uh, questions of faith, questions of um, connectivity, because the family learns to come together, plus incredible Joaquin Phoenix uh, performance, come together uh, in the face of this invasion. Is the solution stupid, as are many M. Night Shyamalan twists? (laughs) Sure. I don't give a fuck. What I do care about is Joaquin Phoenix in a closet watching grainy footage of a birthday party, and then all of a sudden an alien sort of like, walks across the background and it's just sort of like an excellent show us a little scare us with a sound cue and I will jump along with Joaquin Phoenix uh moment. So yeah, put on the put on the tinfoil. It's signs. <laughs> put on the tinfoil, <laughs> swing away. It's signs. <laughs> swing away, Meryl. Swing away. <laughs> uh, my pick is an amazing movie that I'm sure you've seen. And if you haven't, get on it. It's E.T. the Extraterrestrial. <laughs> um, uh, I I think uh, it's it's a great movie for a lot of reasons um, with an amazing performance by young Henry Thomas uh, at the center of it. Uh, as Elliot and some great uh, effects um, that uh, Steven Spielberg was able to uh, use correctly uh, with some fantastic, just pure filmmaking cinematography, uh, a great bike chase, which isn't something that I usually have to say about a movie, but this one absolutely has it. It is the movie that gives you that Amblin feel that everybody would try to rip off uh, for the rest of time. Uh, E.T.'s great. I'm not sure if it's our greatest first contact movie. I'm not even sure if it's Steven Spielberg's greatest first contact movie. So I ultimately left it as more of a of a really great alien film um, because I rode the ride at Universal. I know step two is everybody gets to go to the Green Planet uh, for the unofficial E.T. sequel. Uh, so it wasn't our last contact with E.T., thank God. Nice. Yeah, I mean, those are all really tough ones. But I feel like we can find a couple more good ones for our debate. <laughs> Some Wait, something better than signs? Surely not. <laughs> I mean, don't be... Well, don't be. Silly goose, Neil. <laughs> We've got some some stuff that I would call signs adjacent coming up. But the important thing is Joanna Robinson keeps winning. So Joanna Robinson gets to keep going first. <laughs> Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The most exciting part of a vacation stay at a home rental? Easy. It's being greeted upon arrival with a rusted lockbox affixed to the underside of a stranger's condo. Yeah, you simply twist knobs, click gears, jiggle it, and then rip it off its moorings, and voila! Your prize is a key to a questionable home rental and maybe tetanus. When you just want to get your vacation started by actually getting into your room, it matters where you stay. 
At Hilton, we deliver your key right to your phone on the Hilton Honors app. Hilton for the stay. Guess what, guys? We're hoping I break my streak this week because I have uh, liberated a property from trial by content jail. Um, one that we locked away after very low audience reception to it. And I'm like, guess what? It's back. It's Star Trek. And we are here to talk <laughs> about a film called 1996 Star Trek colon First Contact. Um, I didn't just pick it because it's in the title. I genuinely love this movie so much. This is my favorite Star Trek movie. It's not considered the best Star Trek movie, but it is my personal favorite. Um, directed by the great Jonathan Frakes, um, Riker himself, Co-written by Ron Moore, a Battlestar Galactica fame. Ever heard of him? Uh, this is a time... The studio wanted a time travel story. The writers wanted a Borg story. And they were like, guess what? We're going to do both. So uh, the crew of the Enterprise travels travels back in time to the futuristic date of 2063 <laughs> to stop <laughs> the Borg from stopping humanity from making first contact with a non-human species the vulcans and what ensues there's like there there are there's plot going on in multiple locations right there's basically like die hard on the enterprise which is one of my favorite kind of stories right where like the enterprise has been taken over by the borg and picard and some other members of the crew wharf etc have to like run around and try to figure out how to on their own ship in the in the tunnels and in the whatever like figure out how to how to liberate the ship there's Data and the Borg Queen, two of the moistest people you will ever see ever. Uh, just like Alice Krieg as the Borg Queen is one of the all-time best villain performances ever. I mean, deeply of aliens. Dewey. Absolutely. And she, like, I rewatched it for this, and I like, I didn't remember how many like deeply obvious innuendos are are like. I was too young, I think, when I saw this, and I didn't understand. She loved having was going data on. strapped to her table, is what we know. Yeah, oh, she's, she's like, sure let did. me blow gently on your <laughs> skin. <laughs> and he's like, Brett Spider's like, oh, data's gonna orgasm now. Enjoy. <laughs> um, uh, this is what happens in the movie. I didn't make this up. And then down on Earth, Zephram Cochran, the human who, uh, you know, first traveled through, I don't know what, broke the speed, whatever. Did something that attracted faster the than attention light faster right. than light travel. Attention attract the attention of the of the aliens so that they would make first contact with humans. Um, our members of the crew that are our away team, if you will, who are down on Earth, have to basically get Zephyr Cochran to go ahead with this flight, even though he is a he is this like heroic vaulted figure in Starfleet history. He's actually a drunken, highly uh, flawed uh, mercenary person played by the great James Cromwell, Zephyrin Cochran. And what I love about this story, this first contact story, is, um, first of all, the the idea of the Borg being involved in a first contact story is so interesting to me because they are not the aliens being referenced in the first contact um, instance, but they are, uh, you know, such a clear case of, this is your worst case scenario, right? Uh, uh, an alien species that wants to assimilate everything and take over everything and just destroy everything that the earth ever was. Um, and then the flip side is that you have Riker and Troy and whoever trying to convince Ephraim Cochran that like there uh, there's another kind 
and there's another future. And what First Contact does, and, and Picard has to explain this to Alfred Woodard's character as well, what First Contact does is change forever the way that humanity, you know, when you when you watch any Star Trek property, the Earth has somehow cured, like, disease and got through capitalism out the window and, like, all this other stuff like that. And they are united in the betterment of humanity. This is the idealistic future that Gene Roddenberry came up with, right? And what does it, according to this film, is first contact and this knowledge that there is something bigger out there and all of a sudden humanity comes together as one. Is that what would happen? Probably not, but I like this idea of, of the future. Um they call it the pivotal moment in human history. After you do this, everything begins to change. It unites humanity more than we ever thought possible when they found out they weren't alone in the galaxy. Um, also, I have to shout out a couple other lines. Cochrane, when they when they first do his flight into space, Cochrane looks back on Earth and he says, is that Earth? It's so small. And then Riker says, it's about to get a whole lot bigger. And then Alfred <laughs> Winter's character, when she finds out about the Borg, she goes, Borg? That sounds Swedish. Which is just <laughs> fucking great. Um, this is a great movie uh, with great performances, uh, a great rumination on what it means to make first contact, what it means to be human, given like Data's whole journey that he goes through in this uh, story, what it means. to I love that Zephyr Cochran is such a flawed, messy individual and is the first one who like gets to hear live long and prosper from a Vulcan as a human. Like I, I love how messy and human he is. And, um, I love, uh, drunk Troy. What could be better than, uh, Deanna <laughs> Troy with some tequila shots. Yeah. In there. So Star Trek first contact. What a fucking phenomenal film. Great job, Jonathan Frakes. Uh, I love that. Um, I, yes, I have very fond memories of Star Trek first contact. Uh, let's, do some word association slash keep following the poll. Neil, you're up next. Ooh, fun. All right. Well, I'm here to tell you about a movie that has some of this week's uh, debate uh, in its title. And it's really just a movie about searching for your father amongst the stars. Uh, it's a film, 1997 film called Contacts, directed by one Bob Zemeckis. And the film, of course, tells the story of tiny baby Jenna Malone who loses her dad and then spends <laughs> her entire life as she grows up into Jodie Foster uh, looking for said aliens. And it gives me, it's it's adapted from a book by Carl Sagan, but it gives us what I think is my own personal answer. Uh, I've grafted as my own personal answer to our aliens out there, which is at one point David Morse, who plays uh, her father in the movie, says, if it is just us, it seems like an awful big waste of space. And that is sort of the core theory of what's happening in the film Contact. It's a film that features a brilliant performance from like peak Jodie Foster uh, as a woman who is so deeply committed to science, she hooks up with and then ghosts mid-90s Matthew McConaughey. Um, like, what a move, honestly. Just what, what a, a power move. move. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, it's a movie that was, at one point, its development in the hands of a director named George Miller, whose work we are familiar with. He's even responsible wow. for casting Jodie Foster. But he was ultimately fired by the studio. Would either of you like to guess why George Miller was fired by the studio on Contact? Okay. Um, behind schedule, over budget. 
behind schedule. <laughs> George, George Miller is taking too long. So they brought in Bob Zemeckis. They gave him all kinds of contractually interesting stuff, like final cut of the movie. And he finished the job. Uh, it's a movie that I believe is an, it's an efficient, clever adaptation of Carl Sagan's very dense 1985 novel of the same name. Uh, it is by far the most pro-science and I would say hard science fiction of the movies that we're talking about today. Uh, it's thoughtful, but accessible. It's focused on its characters, but not at the expense of some really incredible spectacle. Uh, it's a film that wants to have a big conversation about, you know, woman of faith versus woman of science, the great thing that's tearing Jodie Foster apart through this uh, entire film. And then he wants to sort of flip that conversation on its head. It's a, it's a brilliantly balanced piece of blockbuster cinema. It also includes a top-tier William Fickner performance, I, which I, I love. I was going to say, <laughs> top <laughs> Fickner. Top. Yeah. It has a, a wild and unpredictable Jake Busey that shows up. <laughs> we get evangelical weirdo Rob Lowe. We've got Tom Skerritt's mustache doing all kinds of crimes oh, against science. Hell yeah. Hell and yeah. we have John Hurt, who previously mentioned does belong in all of these movies, as a Bond villain-like billionaire who is trying to pay back the people of Earth for, and I quote, everything I've taken from them, which is... Some real goals for the billionaire class here. Like, let's 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 do it. Uh, it's also a film that I love because it's full of technical wizardry. It has digital Bill Clinton in it, which is a wild thing to watch a film try to do from the mid nineties. Uh, it has the iconic sleight of hand in that mirror shot when she goes up to get the pills as her dad is having the heart attack, and it's coming at you from both directions. Just a brilliant piece of compositing. Uh, and the film's opening, which at the time was the longest continuous computer-generated sequence ever in a live-action film. I'm, of course, talking about it starts at Earth and then pulls us all the way back through space, all the way to the Vega system, where we will eventually make contacts, zip through a wormhole, and, you know, meet Dad out in space. <laughs> <laughs> So I think it's, it's again, like I said, it's, it's the most scientific. I think Jodie Foster really brings it home. McConaughey is great in this movie. The entire cast brings it. 1997's Contact, the movie, when it comes to the search for, the search for connection in the universe. This is the most Daddy Issues first contact movie we'll talk about, right? Is that right? I mean, it has to well, be. Well, <laughs> we gotta we gotta answer the question, how did daddy get to space? Maybe I can help. <laughs> there you go. Uh, instead of um <laughs> Why picking, is this movie called How Did Daddy Get to Space? How did Daddy Get to Space? <laughs> because I think that would have hit too close to a nerve. I'm picking uh Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yeah, uh, if you've seen the Fablemans, you know what Steven Spielberg now thinks about his parents' marriage. If you see Close Encounters of the Third Kind, you see a child trying to justify what could be so important that apparently his dad wanted to break up uh, his marriage. Uh, that ends up sort of not being the entire story as the Fablemans pulls out. But that is the thing that hits me the most watching Close Encounters of the Third Kind after the Fablemans, is uh, you get to see Richard Dreyfuss's uh, character have a mental crisis. Roy Neary destroys the neighborhood trying to sculpt things in his house, and the uh, 
mother of the family needs to take the kids away and they drive right out of the movie. But those kids are the perspective that this movie is being written from. It is Steven Spielberg trying to say, is there a world where my dad's like uh, situation actually had something super important that was beyond traditional understanding? And so this is sort of a fantasy about a bad dad making a choice that he's compelled to make through uh, things that aren't really necessarily his decision. He's not a bad father when the story starts, but the second he has a close encounter of the third kind, uh, he pivots to being obsessed uh, with alien visions uh, that are forcing him to sculpt a mountain uh, that he eventually tracks down. They have first contact. They communicate with the aliens musically, and uh, he ends up going up into space. That's the dad side. But and it would, I think all of that works very well. It's incredibly touching. Uh, it's a, especially touching if you go meta with it and think about uh, a young man trying to uh, rationalize what he saw as unstable behavior. Uh, but what I also like about Close Encounters of the Third Kind is parallel to that happening, Francois Truffaut is trying to figure <laughs> shit out. <laughs> Which takes us on a minor globe hopping, uh, very technical uh, search for how to actually come in contact with these aliens when they do arrive. Uh, it also includes a fantastic scene uh, where they realize some numbers being sent to them from space are actually uh, latitude and longitude coordinates because we don't have the internet. They have to go get a globe. Uh, to figure out what further maps <laughs> to roll to... a globe down the hall. Yeah, really and then the guy says like that's a, like a that's a two thousand dollar globe or something like that. I'm like, people are spending way too much money on globes. Uh, that was that was too much in the eighties, seventies. It would be ludicrous today. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, there's so many layers to close encounters uh, that I really appreciate, um, especially this era of early Spielberg the sort of pre-everybody knowing that he had a track record uh, for doing blockbusters uh, is a layer of Spielberg that doesn't ever really talk down to its audience. Uh, there's a really early air traffic control scene. Uh, there's a couple of different scenes where really technical things are happening about how to musically communicate with the aliens. And the dialogue zips by super fast, so you just sort of get to glean over it. I mean, even the early stuff with Roy Neely and his family is moving at a pace uh, that is much faster than I think traditional movies, but also therefore plays to me as much more real. Uh, you know, like you're going to not be raised a heathen. You're going to go see Pinocchio tonight. Stuff like that is fantastic. So it's really a movie that I think uh, meets you at several emotional levels, even before it hits its final 30 minutes where the score mixes with the actual communications with the aliens misses mixes with what you wish upon a star uh, and then mixes with uh, basically all the prototypical Spielberg faces of looking up in awe. A good 80% of them are in this movie because there's a lot to look up in awe about. Uh, one I watched... of them is Francois Truffaut. Let's just, <laughs> one of them is forget. Francois Truffaut. <laughs> um, uh, I ended up watching the uh, director's cut or the collector's edition, depending on how that's called. That's the 4K 
restoration, but that means it is the second longest. It's slightly longer than the, the shorter than the theatrical cut, but it doesn't have the interior shots of the mothership from the special edition, which Steven Spielberg had to include because they wanted to market the as a whole new cut. And it, uh, since then, decided that he didn't want to. So he has made a uh, collector's edition or director's cut. Those are the two words you want to look for. And it looks great in 4K. If you want to really notice how um, dependent we've become on uh, split diopter deep focus, watch Close Encounters in 4K. All the lensing is very, very specific, which leads to like a eerie uh, blur. It's almost like an echo blur on the edges of the frame that is deployed fantastically in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I love Star Trek Next Generation. Huge fan. Contact, absolutely beautiful beautiful narrative. I think Close Encounters of the Third Kind is actually the best movie for all those various reasons, even though I don't agree with any of the parenting decisions. Any of the parenting <laughs> decisions in that movie. I, I think what's so interesting about Close Encounters, um, and I feel like we've talked about this before when we've done like Spielberg coverage, but like the way in which Spielberg both makes this a movie about his bad dad, bad dadding, which again, it's more complicated than that, but that was his interpretation at the time of what his dad did. Um, And then also the Richard Dreyfuss character is also like a Steven Spielberg author insert character because he's a man preoccupied with a project with um, like a monomaniacal, like artistic driven by dreams and a vision and like sculpting things, you know, making models and sculpting things and blah, blah, blah. Like that's Steven Spielberg also. So it's like so fascinating that he's like, let's do this examination of my dad, but also it's me. <laughs> like that, <laughs> right. you know, Freud is like, I see what else, what else do you want to say about and this? <laughs> together we're going up in the spaceship at the end. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and like, It's the, not even Freud. It's Francois Truffaut. He's like, yes, is- well, there are other things in here, aren't there? Aren't there? Is there something you uh, say? Um, and then also the 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 special thank you to Steven Spielberg on in Asteroid City, of course, is like the setting is very close encounters, but also there's like the tone noises and the like mm-hmm. blinking lights. Like it's very it's so close encounters. It's it's close encounters of the fourth kind. Anyway, um, yeah, I mean this is a great, it's a fucking classic, great movie. I saw a great print of it. Uh, they you know put it back in theaters, and I saw it at the Alamo, just like. Yeah, you know, well, it was probably many years ago now. What is time? But I had a great time with it. So yeah, it really moves at a as a great uh, clip. Contact. I, I read the book, uh, the Carl Sagan book, in my physics class in high school. But like, sure. Shout out That's, to shout out. Sounds about right. Shout out to my physics teacher who was like, Joanna, you only want to read books, right? Let's read Contact. Um, and uh, you don't want to do math or science. <laughs> um. And I think, I mean, it is an interesting encapsulation of the novel. I think it's a, like, somewhat overly sentimental adaptation of the novel. And I just cannot, we cannot leave this conversation about contact without just laying the line they should have sent a poet down into the conversation (laughs) and whether or not that's our favorite sort of first contact reaction that happens in a movie. It's kind of funny how that line just goes by. And honestly, I get distracted by like all the stuff they're doing visually with her face, like her face going back and forth between Jenna Malone and Jodie Foster. Um, but I don't know. I mean, it's that whole movie is just about 
the person of science having their moment of faith, their moment of true awe. And maybe, you know, maybe the numbers don't matter as much at that point. And it is all it's, about poetry. It's it's the Coke to uh, Signs' diet, Mr. Pibb. <laughs> maybe. How dare you? <laughs> they, they, diet, they, Mr. Pibb? At least Diet Dr. Pepper. Like, it's not Mr. Pim. Come on. Like, yeah, I don't know. I don't I know. Think it's a, if I your think wife's it's a dying and has a flash forward to the solution to an alien conflict, I feel that's very Mr. Pim. We're not debating signs. Signs is a sentimental <laughs> favorite that you don't have to come for. You're not you competing against You just tried to give signs. it its doctorate in soda form. I just wanted to knock that back down to Mr. Pim. Fine. Pimp. It is, a, it is, it is a, a Barks root beer. It's not even. It's sure, not even a Mister sure. or a Doctor. <laughs> Fair enough. It's got bite. It's got bite. Okay. Yeah, I think the only reason I wouldn't choose Contact is, I, this movie, watching the entire run of the movie, is the only time I felt really generous about faith and science being able to productively interact with each other. Uh, is at the end of this movie. Where she's like, I had an experience. And I'm like, oh man, this is actually getting me to the point that this movie needs me to get to. But I think like her experience, Contact is a movie you kind of have to watch in order for you to get what it's about. Which is why it gets saddled a lot with like the aliens, her fucking dad is like a short thing. So it's like, well, yes, but it's about how, you know, like Neil was saying, uh, scientist of faith and a faithful scientist. It's about those two things mixing. Uh, but I really think it's going to end up a lot more like the Busey brother, which is just Faith's going to reject it and blow up your prototype. That's how that that read a lot, a lot more accurate yeah. to me. Sure. Um, yeah. That being said, I do enjoy uh, Billionaire Man Lives on Plane is also the James Wood conspiracy where he's like, how do we know this isn't just Jeff Bezos telling us to make a, <laughs> a some sort of drop machine and waste billions of the government dollars? And I'm like, oh, well, at least that part feels accurate. Indeed. I Listen, I also wanted representation for the alien encounter. The first contact movies where we actually have to travel to the aliens because, you know, mostly they come to us yet here on Earth. But uh, I do a contact interstellar. These are in, in my wheelhouse as movies where somebody has to not only be the, the lone, science loner obsessive, right? The one, the only one who believes in their mission, but then has to take the, the leap of faith. I think that's a really important element of contact. It's also a really cool scene where she's like, the bottom of this thing is becoming translucent. <laughs> like she's looking down <laughs> as the wormhole forms underneath there. Uh, anyway, I'm, I'm still good to go on contact. Yeah. I, I love me some contacts and then star Trek. We'll let the listeners decide. Sure. Uh, traditionally they don't like star Trek, but I think Joanna made an excellent argument for this being a first contact movie and definitely one of the better star Trek movies. Interesting that we didn't save it for a star Trek debate, but I re- forgot that star Trek was in jail. So thank you for <laughs> jailbreaking my boys, Joanna and girls, everybody. They're out. Deanna They're has out. some tequila. Let's go. <laughs> All right. That means we got one more spot to fill for the poll. Each of us has cho- chosen a listener email 
to bring to this argument. Uh, let's go from bottom to top as we have listed here and start with Joanna. Um, all right. Speaking of John Carpenter, who brought us, of course, Karen Allen's got a fucking alien, um, aka Starman. Uh, we also have this film, uh, picked by our listener Charlie, who wrote, I'd like to nominate John Carpenter's The Thing. This may land me in the nice try submission since there, there later came a prequel that showed others encountering the alien creature before our intrepid cast of the 1982 film did. But I argue that prequels should not disqualify this fantastic film because technically John Carpenter's movie was the, quote, first contact for both audiences and the men stationed in an Antarctic outpost. Fear. Mistrust. Paranoia, a stellar cast led by Kurt Russell and a scene-stealing Keith David. The special effects are incredible with one hell of an ending. The thing solidified its place in sci-fi horror movie history as one of the best. And since June 25th was the movie's 41st anniversary, let's give that shape-shifting alien some love. So, The Thing. Absolutely perfect film. 10 out of 10 no notes for The Thing. <laughs> um, this is, like you know, I think in all of our submissions, there's like a moment of awe of first contact, right? Zephram Cocken shakes hands with a Vulcan. Uh, Richard Dreyfuss and Francois Truffaut are like, it's communicating through the music, uh, you know, and, <laughs> and, Jody Fo- and Jody Foster's like, sh- should have sent a fucking poet, man. Um, <laughs> that's not what we really get here, right? The thing is already here and it is uh, an invasion of the body snatchers type story where the thing itself via terrifying special effects can sort of invade and infest dogs and beloved diabetes spokespeople and whoever, you know, whoever else might be out here in the Antarctic space station. So it is a, it is a fear based. What the fuck is happening? Kind of alien invasion story more than like the awe and wonder of a first contact. So I don't know that I would pick the thing, but again, I think the thing is a perfect film. So I would of course want to talk about it. Um, and I think that, um, as we, as we circle back to that idea of like, uh, the otherworldly being making you reevaluate what is an us versus what is a them, right? Like the whole, you know, in first contact, the idea is like the whole earth becomes one whole tribe. And again, fuck capitalism. Um, in, in this case, it's so hard to know who the us and who the them is because of the nature of this particular invasion, which in literally invades the bodies of your friends and turns them into foes, turns them into creepy claymation monsters, et cetera. So, um, I, I like it for that. Um, and yeah, the thing. Anything you guys want to say about the thing? Yeah, I, I agree with what you just said. It's a good example of, you know, one of the uh, horror themed, one of the horror space subspaces of this genre, which is, you know, if aliens show up and they can't immediately be identified, what happens to humans? Like what happens to humans relationships with other humans and what does our fear and paranoia do? Fear and paranoia, obviously big elements of all of these, right? You know, the, the, the paranoia elements of the government's reaction in most first contact movies, but I always think of ET. Um, and yeah, the thing is the ultimate, who can you really trust? Where is this alien that we can't see? Uh, version of of a first contact movie it's great plus you know always got love for john carpenter yeah i feel like we're stumbling across a subcategory and like like this uh under the skin 
uh, currently airing Disney Plus Marvel show, if you will. The whole, <laughs> the whole uh, alien in disguise in order to go on the offensive uh, or to learn, but to learn very aggressively is a uh, an interesting subgenre of uh, this first contact film. That yeah, if we were if we had framed this debate another way, uh, I think both the thing and under the skin would have much better chances. If it was the most terrifying first contact, right? Alien, exactly. Inv- alien invasion films, like something like that. But like, I think the first contact concept that we are seem most drawn to is like there's an element of wonder it, it mixed in mm-hmm. with the fear, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think I don't think anyone's having an, a moment of wonder in the thing. <laughs> well, mine has a my listener pick has a moment of wonder, and that turns into an evasion. Uh, I picked Tyler's email, and Tyler wrote in uh, when I heard uh, this week is about first contact. I couldn't pass up the opportunity to talk about my favorite sci-fi spoof, Tim Burton's Mars Attacks! Exclamation point from 1996. As a young kid who loved sci-fi, this movie was hilarious to me. And as I've grown up, I actually think it's deeper than it's typically given credit for. To me, the sloppy, goofy, conniving aliens from Mars Attacks represent perfectly how us Earth humans would go about conquering a foreign planet. From the utter lack of regard for life on Earth, to the continued false promises of peace, to the goofy interactions aboard their ship, these silly aliens are stand-ins for some of the worst parts of humanity, in my opinion. Mix in a star-studded cast, including Jack Nicholson, the Queen Pam Greer, Pierce Brosnan, Danny DeVito, Glenn Close, and Tom Jones, along with Tim Burton being uh, his visual bag in his visual bag. This movie is a thrill ride. I don't know if this movie has a cult following or if I'm all alone, but despite it being a spoof, I believe this is actually one of the most accurate first contact movies we have. Uh I don't disagree entirely with that. <laughs> I can also confirm for Tyler that you were definitely not alone. We got multiple emails about Mars attacks, which, uh, you know, the mid 90s were wild, man. <laughs> if you're a fan of that movie's yodeling conclusion, you will instantly notice that that tracks in Asteroid City as well. Oh, interesting. Nice. It's so because like I, that happened. I'm like, Mars attacks. Wes Anderson, he's doing it all. Uh, it, yeah, Mars attacks is <laughs> it's it's like a commentary on all the other movies that we're talking about uh but then also i think all the things that tyler's pointing out i do love how ridiculous our invaders are in that particular movie uh i love their language of yak max and uh such and then uh yes one of my favorite gags in that movie is uh once things are going down and they're blowing up cities one alien has the translation device and is like, don't run, we come in peace, as he's chasing a whole crowd of people. Uh, absolutely <laughs> hilarious. Definitely before Tim Burton, uh, I think, lost his uh, lost the plot. Like, peak yeah. quirk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mars Attacks is right in the sweet spot. All right, well, I have come down to my listener's submission, which is uh, last, but I assure you, it is not the least of these. <laughs> and I have chosen an email from Imogen, who says... My submission for the best first contact film can be no other than Arrival. It has, in my opinion, the most unique and engaging perspective of a first encounter by being centered around Amy Adams' character, a linguist attempting to decipher the language of the aliens and therefore understand why they are here after spacecrafts appear across the globe. The combination of utter fear and wonder at the creatures feels so realistic with 
none of the cheesiness that is so often present in first encounter films. There's the perfect balance of eeriness and beauty in the inside of the vessels and of the language. The idea that there could be alternative perceptions of time falls right into this. But most of all, I love the intimacy of Amy Adams' character and the aliens trying to communicate, understand each other, especially when you see the other approaches different countries had to connect with the aliens. It is a fascinating exploration of what empathy and understanding can achieve, resulting in a remarkably hopeful message. Uh, Arrival uh, from French-Canadian filmmaker Denis Villeneuve uh, (laughs) is an absolute banger. One of the things I like about like first contact movies is it's been a strong genre for many, many years, right? Like even back in you know, obviously we talked about Day of the Earth and still in the 50s, there were these, you know, big movies that would deal with it. But then there were a lot of like small, uh, you know, weird B movies that sort of kept the genre alive. But in the 2000s, it has entered its prestige art house era in, in a really big way. And I think Arrival is the is a very towering achievement in storytelling and it looks great and uh, very few filmmakers know how to hold a moment like Denis, right? Like the script says helicopter approaches the camp and then Denis Villeneuve and Bradford Young, the cinematographer, are like, but what if it's like a 20-second slow shot of the helicopter slowly whirling around this camp and landing next to the giant uh, alien spacecraft? And uh, I like it. It's very thoughtful and methodical film. And, uh, you know, maybe... Maybe my favorite Amy Adams blockbuster performance. I mean, she's done some smaller movies that performances are better, but it's uh, it's great. Well, also, you're very putting, good. You, wait, you're Renner. putting this over Batman v Superman: Dawn of Justice. <laughs> yes, yes, I definitely wow. am. <laughs> wow, Neil. Okay. Also, unexpectedly great uh, Jeremy Renner performance in my, this one. Far and away, my favorite Renner. Oh, yeah, yeah, incredible. So, uh, Arrival, yeah, Arrival. Uh, tough, tough one to beat, especially on the internet. I'm hurt. I'm told. Uh, yeah, I think Arrival might be the thing that just puts us all in the dirt um, this week. But um, this comes back to a lot of the the concepts that we've been talking about: grief, uh, parenthood. Um, I like the. I really love the ethnographic sort of angle of it. This sort of like scientific. How how do we, what would we actually do? Um, should aliens come? How would we communicate with them? Stuff like that. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful poem of a film. And uh, you'd have to be a monster to disagree. Dave? Oh, you mean they sent a poet this time? <laughs> oh. no, they sent, this time they sent poetry, you know? Dave, what do you I have mean, to say about I don't, I don't. I don't want to spoil the end of the movie, but if you want a climax uh, to tell you how to contextualize what you thought were flashbacks, we have to go back wins over whatever Arrival's doing. Um, I think it has a fantastic first contact story bookended by an underserved uh, short story narrative. Uh, Arrival's too slow for me. I don't like it. I'm sorry. I don't, I mean, the the important thing is, given my track record on this show, it's going to go in and it's going to beat me. Uh, I just like, you know, like Shrek before, I'm I'm just disappointed. I would like you to know I honor your vote, 
with a very disappointed face. And maybe that vote for Arrival is also a vote for Dave Doesn't Understand Movies, which is perfectly fine. I think it is beautiful. I think it is slow. And I think it skips over the parts of it that are actually smart uh, with um, voiceover and uh, flashbacks that are part of that that border story that I don't I don't appreciate. But you know, just me, childless Dave didn't like prisoners, didn't like Dune. <laughs> Take get in the goop, Dave. Get in the fucking goop. Just me, childless Dave here. Oh, I Hell's hope there's Dave, no black goop down there. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, but that being said, how into the internet is, or how into Arrival is the internet, Joanna? You, you're the one who's our, our, our reader in the... Very. I think we're going to get absolutely pasted. I mean, Close Encounters, I think, because it's such a classic, is going to probably do pretty well. Uh, Star Trek, we've already established. <laughs> no one wants... It doesn't matter that it's literally the title <laughs> of this movie. It won't matter. Um, and Contact... Mix. I, so I would say it's probably going to go Arrival by a lot, then Close Encounters, then uh, then Contact, then Star Trek First Contact last, and then all the reply guys being like, where's E.T.? That's what we're Yeah, E.T. is probably going to be the one that, that, we're, that we regret putting in there. But listen, you can't have too much Spielberg in this poll. And then all, <laughs> of, and then all, of, my, all of my burners being like, we're signs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think Arrival is the clear choice out of these listeners. Mars Attacks, very fun movie. The Thing, mm-hmm. not only a great movie, but a really great example of sort of a, a branch of this genre that I think is is really great. Um, but it's it's tough to beat Arrival. I disagree with Dave. The twist of Arrival somehow works for me, and it's just. You know, it's it's another one of those examples of of a different form of giving a character a leap of faith, right? It's like, what if you knew that the leap was going to end badly and you did it anyway? Did it anyway. You know, your shitty life is worth <laughs> yeah. living. I guess. I don't think. I don't feel like. I don't feel like that twist and arrival is like a holy shit plot twist. It's an emotional devastation that makes you. Sure. Based it, the emotional devastation that comes out of, I think, a really interesting take on the question of like, what are the aliens trying to tell us? Right. Like in each movie, humanity is trying to decide what is what are, what are the aliens trying to tell us and or are they going to try and colonize us? Because we feel we're really afraid of that because we've been doing it to each other for so many years. Um, <laughs> but I, I think Arrival comes up with the cleverest answer of what what are the aliens trying to tell us or what are they trying to give us you know i mean i like that read about it so what we're going to do is slot in arrival to the fourth spot on the poll if i go down in history somebody who had bad opinions about movies on a podcast you know what probably accurate wouldn't be the first time won't be <laughs> hey. the last <laughs> I like how you're like some of these people like will like the classic films, and in my mind, it was like five point seven percent of the votes for Psycho would like to have a. Word. I just think you picked the <laughs> wrong Hitchcock MacGuffin. I don't think the money from Psycho was going to get you there, but I think if you had picked something else, you could have gotten there. Maybe fair. If, if literally enough. any of us had picked the Maltese Falcon. Yeah, that, that is true. <laughs> yeah, uh, I had to use that as a way to k- explain MacGuffins to people because uh, yes, it was not in the poll, but that's okay. That was last week. 
This week, new week for me to fail. The final poll is Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Star Trek First Contact, Contact, and Arrival. You could find our poll for the best movie in which humanity makes first contact on theringer.com, at Ringer on Twitter, and in the Spotify app where you find Trial by Content. You could vote in all three of those places, and you choose the winner, and we'll announce it next week. Just one last reminder for me, you could go to letterbox.com slash trial by content and you'll see all the movies, including your 2001s, your ETs, and yes, signs, will be listed from this episode. Uh, Neil, remind everyone what we're doing next week. Well, Dave, next week, uh, in honor of a really great second season for The Bear and at least one meal that just melted my whole face off, uh, we are going to be debating what is the best on-screen meal of all time. This can be from TV or movies, just must be on-screen and must be delicious. So uh, as always, send your pick and a few sentences explaining your pick or any other notes and questions to trialbycontent at gmail.com. This episode is produced by Carlos Chiriboga, who is very disappointed in me for not liking Arrival. <laughs> <laughs>